Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. You heard a week or two ago, if you were here, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before or beside me. And here is the other side of the same coin as God speaks to his people. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you have decided to respond to God. You have begun to realise everything that he has done for you. You have received his invitation, as it were, to drop everything and follow wherever he leads. You have recognised that you have been rescued, that slimy, miry pit, so beloved, of the hymn writers that, that pictures the mess that we were in. And now you want to honour him. You want to do right by him. You want to follow and obey in his ways. You heard that word a couple of weeks ago. No other gods before me or even beside me. Follow me alone. But you're left with a question. What's God like then? How do you picture God? I want to look at this commandment, this second word from God. That's what it means. It's a commandment. We call them, literally, it means the ten words. I want to ask, who's this for? Who's being spoken to here? I want to ask, what's it all about then? And then I want to ask, why is it such a big issue? Why do we have these two commandments, in a sense which govern all the remaining ones, they're two sides of the same coin, and God seems to want urgently to get this across right at the start. He wants to lay the foundation here and make sure his people have really grasped it. Who's this for then? Well, you. You shall not make, any, make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. You. We got something of the sheer wonder of who the you is in that first reading from Deuteronomy. An incredible description again from the mouth of Moses of what God had done with his people. It's an extraordinary saga and it leaves you with a sense of sheer wonder. This is indeed an awesome God. It is extraordinary what he has done for his people. He has called you and me, these people here, and down the generations joining us together. He has called us into his new society. 
his new community. We sang of it a moment ago. We have come in to your family. We now have a new identity. We are part of a new group of people. We are, first and foremost, chosen by God for no other reason than that God chose to. It wasn't anything that uh, was good in us, particularly. We're not any better than anyone else. But we are chosen to be his people. That is the you who is described here. These people were rescued. Why? Why? Because they were in such a state, that miry pit, that picture, that image of how dreadful the situation was. I don't know whether you saw it, but last Sunday, Songs of Praise came from Haddington. And uh, one of the people that they interviewed was the Church of Scotland minister there, Cammy McKenzie, I think you may know him, some of you. Brought up on the west side of Scotland, a very tough upbringing, on a very tough out-of-town housing scheme, very quickly getting into all sorts of trouble, getting amongst, quote, the wrong people, finding himself involved in wheeling and dealing and stealing and drugs, and then banged up for two years at least in jail. And in the midst of all that, coming to his senses, and with tears in his eyes, he spoke of it even now, many years on, what a mess I was in. And God, rescued me. I didn't deserve it. I wasn't worth it. But he stepped in and gave me a new start. Chosen. Rescued. So now he's a follower with everything that he has in his life of this God. He was trapped and now he is freed and the prison sentence kind of doubly underlines the sense of freedom again. For why? Because you are called to display the Lord's ways. You are to be, if I dare put it like this, as it were, a shop window for the character and the nature of God in the world around so that those who pass by may look in and see a glimpse of God. You're called to display the Lord's ways. You see, this is what God does. He chooses, he rescues, he calls, he brings a group of people around himself. This is what he is about. This is the nature of his work in our world. He is the living God. He is active. He is involved. And he has a strategy. He wants the whole world, every nation, every people, in every place, at every time, to know what he is like and to have that choice for themselves, whether to respond or reject, whether to choose to follow in his ways. And the incredible, mind-blowing strategy is that he chooses his people, you, to demonstrate what he is like in the world because his people are called to live his ways so that others will be attracted to his character and may know his forgiveness, may know his intervention in their lives like Cammie McKenzie did so powerfully and as many of us have experienced for ourselves. These ten words, you see, they tell us what God is like. They are a window into the heart and the mind of the living God. They show us how God intended society to be. 
And in that sense, they are a measure, of course, of how far adrift successive generations have gone, how far adrift our current contemporary society is, how far adrift our modern world is from how God intended things to be. They show the depth of the wrong that is going on. Sin in the Bible, one of the words for sin, simply means to fall short. In other words, not to achieve these standards, these commands, these words. They also show, though, how God is committed to putting things right, for he has called you to live in this way. In that sense, these are not general commands for everyone. They're for you, his own people, living with him at the centre and therefore displaying and modelling how God intends things to be. Of course, the call is to everyone to respond and to allow God to shape their lives in the same way. And the desire is to present that in our world as the best way of living amongst all the other options that are out there. You are the heart of this command, says Moses, says God. But the reality is, as we look around, that there are many versions, many views of God out there. So God says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. As if to say, Other people are busy doing all those things, taking images from above, from below, from around, and bowing down to them. That's just the Bible's word for giving everything to them, worshipping them, as if they alone gave meaning and centre and purpose to their lives. So what's it all about then? Well, an idol, we tend to think of just as a carved image or a statue or a picture. Some parts of the world still have them. And we may see them on our travels and on our exotic holidays. It gets us into the world of special places to meet with God. It's as if God is saying here, no, no, that's not how it works. There's something very different going on. There's much more to it. And how many idols there are indeed in our world? You will know them as well as I. J. John, the uh, Cypriot uh, London evangelist, real East End boy is J. John, he's written a very helpful book on these commandments. And he lays out some of them. Let me repeat what he says. He thinks of money. He thinks of possessions and things. He thinks of careers. He thinks of sport. He thinks of holidays. He thinks of sex. He thinks of music. I'd want to add to that the whole lifestyle business with the magazines and the programs. These are idols all around. It's intriguing how many recent films and TV programs that I've seen, perhaps you've seen them too, are set in places where people are getting rehabilitated from being addicted to all these things. Not just the standard ones either. Not for nothing is shopping the number one leisure activity. You can be addicted to that too. Our culture expresses them in its values. I saw a bumper sticker once. He who dies with the most toys wins. Sad, isn't it? Actually, you know the 
difference between men and boys to you? The difference between men and boys is the cost of the toys. <laughs> or the holiday business. Those people who spend their whole lives saving for them, plotting and planning them, and then watching all the programs about them. Uh, those lovely programs, you know, doing all the travelling so that you and I don't have to, as I saw on ITV recently. How frustrating that was. And then they go on their holidays. And at every stage of the process, they go on about their holidays. But these holidays have become an idol for some. Even in the news, we see something of how these idols can work. I wonder if you've noticed, even in our news programs, particularly here in Scotland, the United Kingdom, and perhaps if you get American news as well, that when a natural disaster happens, we measure it by money. Watch for that, it's interesting. I think if we were to watch the program about an Iranian earthquake in Iran, we would be measuring it by loss of life. Oh, we mentioned that, but then we go on very quickly, especially if it's a disaster in America or Britain, we always put a value on it. That's our idol. That's how we measure things. That's how we allow them to shape our thinking and our living. I want you to notice, you see, that all these are good things in their own right. All these are healthy things and right things and proper things in their proper place. They are important. Indeed, they are God-given things. But J. John goes on to talk about some of the other ones. Nationalism. I'm saying nothing about the rugby. He touches some very raw nerves. He talks about the family, which for some can also be an idol. He goes on to talk about the church, which for others can be an idol. You know, those certain ways of doing things that we just always do. Those distinctive approaches to God those particular styles of music that one, in one way or another it seems we'll die for. Even approaches to preaching. They can become idols. Even the Bible itself, when you're meant to look through it to the person of Christ. Good things. But they take God's place. You bow down, you worship them. Here's the key to it. Here's the heart of the commandment. Good things which take over to the point where they seem to give purpose and meaning and fulfilment in your life. Now, J. John goes on a bit further. I want to stay with him for a moment because he's very helpful. He observes that Christians at different times in different places have reacted in very different ways when they meet these things. When they wake up to them, they're so much around us sometimes, we hardly see them. But when we do, we can react in all sorts of different ways. Some Christians say, oh, well, if that's the case, you must have nothing to do with any of them at all. And they kind of invest their life in one or two hours of idol-free worship every Sunday as their way of escaping from this overwhelming pressure around them. He says, no, no, that's not the way to go. Others see what's happening and say, well, we must stand against this. We must fight them. We must knock them over. 
We must deal with them so that if music is an idol, for example, it'd be better to walk away from it altogether. I've known new Christians do that if music was an overwhelming part of their lives, but they've usually found a way back in and they've usually found a way of knowing God in the midst of that and expressing their faith through their musical gifts. Or take sex, as J. John does. Undoubtedly one of the biggest idols in our culture just now, promising all kinds of things, excitement, relationship, variety, all the while promising to give glimpses of something beyond ourselves, what we Christians would call the transcendent, the, the, the feeling, the experience of being in touch with something beyond yourself, which we, of course, would call God. But if that's the case, we'd better be against it then, hadn't we? J. John says no. So much of what uh, I and Jeremy, my colleague, uh, deal with at Evangelical Alliance the trigger points, the flash points uh, are to do with sex and it's very hard to keep the focus on what we really want to say which is that God has given a good thing to be enjoyed in the right place to be the seal on a committed married relationship to be enjoyed within that context to be experienced and to be shared the bond between a committed couple but how hard it is to express that in a world that just thinks we Christians are just hung up about sex all the time. And it's the only thing we seem to care about. J. John has a lovely image. He says that what we need to learn to do is not to avoid these things and not to oppose them, but to plant a flag in the midst of them. To declare that God is the Lord in the midst of these things. Giving a clear indication that he is in charge. He, he calls us to be brave, to demonstrate God's word in a world that would rather go its own way. He uses it as an illustration the way that you often find church buildings built on places where worship went on before the church. Worship of the sun or the stars or uh, some other kind of uh, new age worship or something like that. And uh, some people have said, oh, well, that's just... Uh, you're just putting a different badge on the same thing and it just changes from century to century. But J. John says, no, that's like planting a flag. That's like making a declaration. Yeah, things have been worshipped here, but now the Lord is in charge. And now we've found the true God. And we're going to plant a flag here, so we'll build over the old site and make that declaration that the Lord is king in a competitive religious world. It's as if to say the Lord wins an interesting glimpse, isn't it? It's a challenging image. You're beginning to get the picture, aren't you? In case you haven't, look at the second half of the commandment, which drills it home. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. How do you picture God? What is God like? Here again we come right to the heart of it. This is about the nature of God, how God is, how God works, how he is known. And there are two surprises in this second half. The first is that God says, I'm your God. You're my people, of course. You're identified with me. 
but I'm identified with you and that's why it really matters to me what you do and how you are. When they see you, says God, they'll see me. Therefore, it's really crucial that what they see in you truly reflects me. You're identified with me, I'm identified with you. That's the point of the church in the New Testament. And when they see me, I want them to get the true picture. Well, the second surprise was there, you saw it as I read it. I am a jealous God. As in the first commandment where I am the Lord. Remember Peter explained to you, capital letters, Lord, in the Old Testament is that original name for God. God who is unique amongst all comers. God who seeks an exclusive relationship to not allowing anybody else into the heart of that. God who seeks a personal response to him. And here's the very heart of this commandment, you see. God says, I'm a jealous God. And you're shocked. You say, oh gosh, that's, that's terrible, isn't it? So many of our critics and our friends jump on that straight away. But you see what he's doing. God is saying effectively this. If you made me up, you'd never make me up like this. Don't make an idol for yourself. Because if you put yourself in charge, you'd never get to where I am, says God. You'd never understand, this is how I am. Idols may be physical things, but they're also ideas. And idols, we think we control them. We visit them when we need them. But the true God is the God who's visited us. And the trouble with this vision is that we would never come to this under our own steam. We live in a world of focus groups and consultations. Maybe at work you're, you're struggling with a wave of these again. And if I sent you off uh, to a group brainstorm over coffee after the service this evening on what you think God would be like, no way would you come back and say, oh, God's jealous. <laughs> oh, gosh, that wouldn't be a very good thing to say, would it? That'd be, that'd take us right in the wrong direction. Gosh, we'll get into all sorts of trouble with people around us. That's God's point. You make your own idol, you'll never get to who I am. You'll never see how I really am. You'll never get it for yourself. The trouble you see is that the idols, the ideas, the pictures, the images, they imprison God by only displaying part of him. What God is saying here is, I'm giving you the whole story. This is me. This is what matters to me. And I've set up a world, a world of consequences. So that yes, when you go your own way and live your life of independence and turn your back on me, you will face the consequences for three or four generations. And it will work its way through the generations and it's very hard to cope with the consequences of that. But at the same time, my longing is to bless thousands of generations. Isn't that an extraordinary picture? How often we get embroiled in arguments about the third and the fourth generation, the consequences and the notion that God could be a jealous God who punishes and we never manage to get on to this glorious vision of a God of love who longs to bless for thousands of generations. It's an extraordinary, beautiful, powerful picture. I'm a jealous God, says God. You would never have imagined that on your own. And indeed, your images would always stop short of this. You only know me as I am because I have chosen to let you know. So there's no room in Christian experience for what we often hear 
Oh, I like to think of God as, you can fill in the blank, it's usually something like uh, God as love, or God as care, or God as kindness, or God as forgiveness. They're all true, but they're not the whole picture. They're not the whole story. They're not everything that God wants us to know. Now, we're in a culture that says it believes in tolerance and kind of really hates this kind of language, doesn't understand why we believe in a God in such a way like this. Actually, it says one thing, but my guess is it can't live with what it says. In practice, you see, it can't live like that with endless toleration. Well, I will refer to the rugby briefly, but in Friday's evening news, there was a fascinating article about what happens when nationalities clash. Friendships go by the wayside, completely in an England-Scotland challenge, says Murray Watson, who's written uh, a book about being English in Scotland. Or in the last week or two, the Scotsman did a long series about modern marriage, interviewing all sorts of people, coming up with all sorts of terrifying statistics about things hard. Uh, On the first one, uh, we were introduced to Gary and Susan from across the water in Dunfermline and we we saw the fairy tale nature of their relationship and how they came together and how they uh, enjoyed giving one another space and so on. But when it came to the notion that one of them might enjoy going off with somebody else and sleeping with them, uh uh-uh, they drew the line absolutely there. They talked with great feeling about uh, how it would be to experience that. You'd feel utterly betrayed. You'd feel absolutely gutted. You'd have every right to be angry. That's the image that God is using, actually. That's how I feel, God says, when you're disloyal to me. Susan puts it like this. What about fidelity? Would that be a deal breaker? Yes, definitely, she answers, like gunfire. Death might follow infidelity. I don't think things could ever be right for me. Again, if I knew Gary had slept with somebody else, I'd bring it up on every possible occasion. So it wouldn't be a healthy relationship to carry on. You bet. That's the kind of image that God says he wants to use for himself. I'm jealous like that. I know that the best way for a relationship to flourish is on the basis of total loyalty. That's how I've set things up. That's what I want. I'm jealous. I don't want you to make your own image of me. I don't want you to stop short of the whole story and the true picture. I don't want you to hold on to things just for your own benefit. Instead, I'm calling you to serve me in my way, on my terms. Will you respond? Will you go my way? Idols, you see, turn things on their head. They put them the wrong way round, upside down. Now, here's where I make a confession. In a talk on idols, you should have had images this evening, but I'm not master of my idol, and the computer let me down today. Well, I let the computer down, probably. I had this lovely presentation for you. It was very nice, actually. Beautifully put together. I've been working on it since Tuesday. I've been chipping away. I thought, I've just got an hour this afternoon. I'll put it on a disc, and I'll bring it to show you. But of course, these are great servants, but bad masters. And I need tuition. So I need some help 
from somebody. They say that every new computer should come with a free eight-year-old, don't they? So <coughs> it reminds me of the, um, the old advert for the Fiat Strada. Do you remember that uh, old car? Forgive me if you still drive one. Uh, it was, um, it was uh, greatly uh, lauded. It was a real step forward. It was designed by computer. That's what the slogan said. And then it was built by robots. And in the dust underneath, somebody had written, driven by a moron. I wanted to give you an illustration of how idols can trap your thinking. I wanted to show you three images of Jesus. What's called the standard image, the classic one, which actually comes from a Roman figure of the 5th or 4th century. You know, the long nose, the fine feature, the long flowing hair. You see them in the Jesus films so often. And then I wanted to show you the image that was used once by the Church of England for their publicity stunt. Meek. Mild as if. And it was the image of Che Guevara, actually. But it was clearly a Jesus picture. I suppose quite similar to that 5th century Roman image. And then I wanted to show you the image that they produced for Son of God last year at Easter time. You know, where they used forensic techniques to reconstruct a kind of average 1st century Middle Eastern head and face. And the image was extraordinary. It was completely different from anything you could imagine or any of the pictures that you've seen of Jesus. It was a swarthy character with a square face, a thick jaw, a thin beard and short hair, and a wide flat nose, a Middle Eastern Jesus. My point was simply that each of those can trap your thinking. As I was preparing for this, I was quite taken aback to find one very famous Christian writer suggesting that what you should do actually is keep a picture of Jesus beside your bed so that the last thing you see when you go to sleep is Jesus. And the first thing you see when you wake up in the morning is Jesus. I think that's crossed the line. I think that's replacing the reality with an idol. I think that's replacing the spiritual with the physical. I'm not for a minute saying that if you're an artist or a sculpture person, sculpturer, sorry, uh, that you are precluded from expressing these images the heart of the commandment is that they're not to be for worship. But remember, when you do, they only tell a bit of the story. They only give a snapshot. They only give a glimpse. And as such, of course, they can be very helpful if we've missed the point about the suffering and the pain that Jesus went through. You might consider going to see Mel Gibson's film, The Passion, which is coming very soon. He is determined to present a realistic image of Jesus. Uh, so much so that uh, the script is in uh, Old Test uh, New Testament Greek and Aramaic with subtitles, I promise. Uh, but he's giving a very violent image of what Jesus went through. And in a sense, I think some of our Christmas card images have taken us away from that. And we need to remember what Jesus went through. Again, we sang of it earlier on. You may not want to see that film, or you may want to take a friend to see it, because it's a very good place to start the conversation. But it is only a start, that's the point. And we should all remember that there is a bigger picture which God has revealed, which God wants us to follow. And these snapshots, these images, these idols will trap them, unless we're very, very careful. We're not dealing here, you see, with a lifeless photograph, a picture, or a statue but a living God who communicates and speaks and acts 
and can do all things and is still doing them amongst us and in our world up and down this country. I wonder how you feel as you reflect on this. Who is it for? It's for you, the people of God. What's it all about? It's about not imprisoning God, but following him on his own terms. That's why it's such a big and significant issue. The final image of God, I'm going to read in a moment as we move into a time of song and prayer and as we come before God together. It's the image of God become human. God who is Christ. I'm going to read in a minute from Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. But do you see what's been said? God is saying, don't put anything or anyone else in my place. They'll give you a false picture of me. They won't tell you the whole story. They can't. You'll get the wrong end of the stick. And worse as a result, your own Christian experience may prove faulty. And the witness that you give the picture that you show to those who are looking will not be the right one. You'll only pass on part of the story. And the people I long to reach through you will be misled. You may have listened tonight and you may have realised, yes, that this is for you. You may have recognised the connection. Why do people have such a twisted view of God. Why, why are they so hung up when they hear that God is a jealous God and that there are consequences in this world and that God is a God of justice and he does deal with things and nothing gets past him. And that finally, one glorious day, Jesus Christ will return in glory so no one can mistake him and will deal with all things forever. And you may have made the connection between that twisted view of God and ourselves in our false impression and in what we've shared. We may want to ask God's forgiveness in a few moments as Richard and Alison lead us in our prayers. You may not yet be a Christian and you may think, gosh, I've heard all this. How could I ever live up to that? How could I ever achieve such a standard? And the answer is you couldn't, not on your own. But here we'll see in this vision of God who is Christ, the one who has come to die so that this may be possible for you. The one who when he left sent his spirit that you may live in this way and you may reflect his glory. Before I read, I'll leave you with one little story. You may know some churches, they're often Episcopal churches, which is my background. And when you go in, you see on the wall at the back the Ten Commandments. Usually the Lord's Prayer there as well and sometimes the Creed. And uh, the story is told of... Uh, uh, a, a guy whose life had really been on the skids and he'd been uh, in serious trouble, been drinking heavily and his life was falling apart. But actually, he was longing to come and to meet with God. And he came in and he saw the Ten Commandments on the wall. And instead of them kind of wagging the finger at him, saying, oh no, no, you've got it all wrong, you should do this, you should do the other, he read it as it was. You shall not make an idol for yourself. 
And he took it to himself. In Christ, he will have the power to live a different life now. And he went away a free man. Listen to this vision, this final glorious image of God. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and so through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross.